are listening to Understanding Christianity. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Cole. I serve as the lead pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. I also teach Old and New Testament theology and church history at Colorado Christian University. Thank you for listening to our podcast today. I hope you enjoyed the last podcast we had featuring um, Drew McLeod and Eric Kemp of The Provisionist Perspective. We had a friendly dialogue that went over two hours, and as opposed to putting it all into one clip, I decided to break it up into two. And so the way the format was, was um, I was able to ask them five questions, and they answered those on the last podcast. And then on this podcast, you will hear my answers to their five questions. Now, before we go into that, um, I do want to probably do a follow-up podcast in regards to their definition of of sin, their understanding of original sin. Uh, They seem to have some very different views of original sin, uh, saying that sin is not an ontological um, nature. Uh, It's something that you learn as part of your your upbringing, that there's a second fall at the age of accountability. I want to interact with Drew's comments about what Paul says in Romans 7 about his coming alive to and and being dead to the law and things like that. So there was a lot of food for thought on the issue of the nature of sin. And I hope that the last podcast was very illuminating as to what the views are of provisionism. And kind of the format that we had was we really wanted to have uninterrupted time to just give our views. There was no really debating or no counterpoint or cross-examination. This wasn't a debate. This was more, I invited them on the show to say, hey, I want my listeners to know what you guys believe about certain key doctrinal differences that I think are the crux of some of the points of contention between reform theology and provisionism. And so here is part two. They ask me their questions. And so um, I hope you enjoy it. Again, this is the provisionist perspective, guys, Eric Kemp and Drew McLeod. And so let's join this in process as you're listening to Understanding Christianity. All right, guys, I guess I'm on the firing squad now, and you guys can <laughs> can ask me the questions. I got, I'm going to pull my notes up here so I can make sure I'm... But okay. I, am, I am fascinated to your opinion on... I make a very strong distinction. I try to do this uh, as, as often as I can and make sure to, to talk like this as often as I can. I think that there is a huge difference between your regular uh, church-going Calvinist reform person uh, who just loves Jesus and takes their theology seriously. So they go to reformed church, uh, and an internet Calvinist. And I use that phrase internet Calvinist. Uh, we've, we've, one of the main themes here is, uh, throughout this whole thing has been, you don't take the internet Calvinist stance towards us. And I'm wondering why do you think that the internet Calvinists do take that stance towards us? Uh, and not just us, but anything outside of, of the reformed camp, what, what do you think it is that drives we, that? We didn't give him this question. He's not, I know, I know. I'm just fascinated. Right. We could that's totally right. cut this. This is no, for that's me. fine. That's fine. This is no, for me. no, that's, um, why do you think it is? What, what do you think it is within, maybe it's not even within reformed theology. Maybe that it, it, it's just someone you can tie it to that started talking like this. And now there's all these people on, on the internet that talk like this, but why do you think it is that the internet Calvinists, call everybody Pelagians and, 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 and behave this way on the internet. Uh, yeah. Well, okay. So there's a couple of things. Number one, um, for a while there being a Calvinist was cool. Um, it was the new kid on block. And mm. so I think you got a lot of people that got their theology from the internet and they just have a proclivity towards being polemic, being I hit the word pugilistic, being, being just contrary. Um, but I would say like true reformed guys that have read the source material, you know, this was a journey for me way back, like in the late nineties, early two thousands, where I was a, I wouldn't consider myself a provisionist, but I was just a Southern Baptist dude that didn't believe in anything Calvinism. And I came to it kicking and screaming. And I had that early stage where, you know, my dad's been a pastor forever and he signed the traditional statement. And we've had some discussions about that over the years. And, um, 
you know, I first was really, really disrespectful, you know, not in a major way to my father, but just thought I knew everything. Yeah. Dismissive. I've been, yeah. I've been enlightened. I've been born again to these truths and why <laughs> haven't you seen. And so I think there's naturally this whole desire to hide behind a keyboard and say whatever you think. Mm. And um, if yeah. you're in pastoral ministry, our church is reformed, but you've got to be very careful because I know some reformed, like I'll give you a perfect example. Every Wednesday, it's been kind of different with COVID. I pray with six other pastors in town. Some of them are Arminian, some are charismatic. And we don't talk about those things. We just pray for our community. We pray for our churches. We pray for each other. We've been a source of strength to each other through this issue. I have a reformed friend that it's like, why are you meeting with these guys? Why would you compromise and meet with these guys? Why, why waste your time? And I'm like, listen, dude, they may be totally on the opposite page theologically, but they're my buds, they're my friends. We've cried together. We've dealt with church strategies. We've had to deal with church discipline issues. They're a source of, of great comfort to me. So I think until you really have true relationships with people from other denominations and other backgrounds, it's easy to hide behind a keyboard and lash out and think you know everything um, because it's just easy to do like what mm-hmm. we're doing right now. Not very many people would say, okay, I'm just going to write off provisionists. I'm going to call them Pelagian. I'm not going to even read their source material. I'm going to mislabel them. And then I'm going to go on to the next fight because it's fun. And I can prove myself to be, you know, I think if you're truly a mature Christian, you're going to want to number one, be, be authentic where you're going to want to represent the other view accurately. And number two, you're going to want to try to build bridges um, mm. because the bottom line, we're all going to be in heaven together if we've all trusted Christ for salvation. And mm. if we can't learn to get along now, um, you know, this is a dry run for what we're going to experience <laughs> in, in heaven. Yeah. And so um, I think there's just, for some reason, Reformed theology, and I think Leighton Flowers addressed this, it, it attracts, here's, what, here's the way I kind of, this is a very simplistic way of doing it. You got head, heart, and hands people. You got head people that are into theology, theology geeks. You got heart people. They're more counseling and, you know, they like to do counseling and talk about their feelings and emotions and ministry hands people. I don't care about theology. Just tell me what I need to go do. And I'll go mm-hmm. build, build a, you know, go to a homeless shelter. I'll, I'll build a house. I think for the most part, a lot of your Calvinist are head guys and head gals. Mm-hmm. And they have to be very careful to surround themselves with heart and hands people. If not, You'll be like the the church in Ephesus in, Rome, in Revelation chapter two. You, know, you got straight theology, but you you've lost your first love. And I think yes, yeah, so maybe it's a a product of the internet that allows you to not not get those broad perspectives from other people yeah. from other faith traditions, but yeah. they still love Jesus. And and what do yeah. you do with that? Uh, that the internet allows you to create these little circles where you never hear anything outside of it. Yeah. Can I get, can I give just an encouraging word to your, to your, or a word of advice rather to your listeners? Uh, And this is for me and for anybody, for our listeners who will probably inevitably uh, get this is what I do when I'm on the internet. uh, And I don't always succeed at this, but um, especially on Facebook, I click people's profile and I look at their name and I scroll through their profile photo and tell myself, this is a person, a brother or sister who's been made in the image of God and who's redeemed and in the body of Christ. And I need to treat them with love and respect. Now I might be a little bit snarky sometimes and stuff, but I I find that that helps me to see the face and the name. And this is why when people come in with these kind of fake profiles with no name and all this different stuff that I'm just like, I don't, I don't know who you are. It's much easier for you to hide behind a keyboard and say things you wouldn't normally say. Um, So that's my do that. That that's That's helped me. You know, that's that's, great advice. That's really, that's really good advice. That's really good advice. All right. Go for first question. Hey, again, I'm going again. All right. Uh, so, okay. Uh, do you, so Sean, Pastor Sean, yes. do you think Calvinism is founded upon the premise of a divine decree that everything is eternally immutably predestined to work out only one way? And the, the short answer is, is yes. Calvinism is you know, founded upon that premise. Um, and oftentimes I, I hear from non-Calvinists, show me a scripture where God's that's, number that's one. question too, so go okay, ahead. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I, I kind of combine these. Good. Number one, show me a scripture where, number one, it's immutable. It doesn't 
it can't be altered. And number two, show me where it's eternal. And it was made before the foundation of the world. Because uh, that's usually the, the pushback is, I don't see a scripture where that is. Um, that's true. So, yeah. And so before I get to the scriptures, um, I guess the question I would say is, you know, the alternative to this would be um, if you just take those two immutable eternal, then the alternative would be, okay, God has a mutable decree that's either contingent or he can change his mind based upon the fly or what he sees or in time or whatever. Um, And then if it's not eternal, then that gets into the whole issue of God's exhaustive foreknowledge and things like that. And so the the short answer is yes. And so let me just kind of give you some texts. And again, you guys may not come to the same conclusions that I do, but I want to just kind of help you understand maybe some where the reform view is coming from. Um, Job 23, 14, um, God says, for he will complete what he appoints for me. And many such things are in his mind, but he is unchangeable. And who can turn him back what he desires that he does? Now, you can look at this and say, okay, we see that God is unchangeable. God himself is ontologically immutable. But does that mean that his decree at the same time is immutable? Um, Because it says there what he desires that he does. Uh, He will complete what he appoints for me. Now, that doesn't necessarily say anything about it being eternal. But if you go to Isaiah 46, 9 through 11, this is probably, I don't want to get into a lot of texts just for the sake of time, but Isaiah 46, 9 through 11 is probably the one text that I go to and a lot of Calvinists go to to kind of talk about God's eternal decree. It says, remember the former things of old, for I am God and there's no other. I am God, there's none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I've spoken. I will bring it to pass. I've purposed it. I will do it. Now, when God says there, remember the former things of old, probably in the context of Isaiah, he's probably talking about God's redemptive actions towards Israel and Israel's history. But then in verse 10, He says, from ancient times. Now, this is where you've got to kind of understand the Hebrew, and there may be some debate about that. What are the ancient times, things not yet done? Does that just mean way back to the dawn of earth, the dawn of creation, back, you know, Adam, Noah, Abraham? Or does ancient times mean from eternity, that God made a decree from before time of things not yet done? Um, And then God deals with these things that he's doing all related to speaking, declaring the end from the beginning, saying my counsel will stand, calling a bird of prey from the east. Um, And so it's not just that God predicts the future. It's not that God just learns what's going to happen. It's not that he foresees contingencies and then reacts. Um, It's that he declares it. And what kind of a Reformed understanding, and this is kind of biblical, redemptive, historical understanding of of what we call speech act, the speech act of God. And it goes all the way back to creation. When God speaks, it actually happens. When God speaks creation into existence, it happens. And so there's this direct correlation between when God speaks, it actually performs what God intends. And so when God declares the end from the beginning, he's not just predicting it. He's actually ordaining it or decreeing the beginning and the end from ancient times. And saying his counsel will stand. Uh, That counsel that he had determined to accomplish is going to stand. What he says will infallibly be accomplished. There is nothing other than what God has determined will stand. And he gives the example there of calling a bird of prey. And in context, that's King Cyrus of Persia, whom God would raise up to bring the Jews back from from captivity. Um, That was the man of God's counsel. Uh, And then in verse 11 you've got these four real emphatic statements from God, you know, surely, absolutely. I've spoken. I will bring it to pass. I've purposed it. I will do it. Um, and so why does God do it four times and say, most assuredly, I'm going to do these things. Um, the way we understand that is God has an immutable plan, purpose, decree. He's going to bring it to pass. 
It will come to pass infallibly, immutably. It was decreed from ancient times, and we understand that as from before the foundation of the world. And there's an interesting passage in Ecclesiastes, and I'll just stop after this. Um, sometimes Ecclesiastes, you find these interesting nuggets that, that really don't teach a lot of theology. But in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, Solomon kind of pauses with all of these things he's talking about and kind of gives like a theological statement. But in Ecclesiastes 3.14, he says, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. And so we look at that passage and say that, you know, nothing can be added to God's plan. Nothing can be taken away from God's plan. In his mind, what is to be has already been done. And what has happened, so there's this whole idea of an eternal, immutable decree of God. And so those would be just a few passages of Scripture I would draw your listeners' attention to that would teach immutability and eternality of a decree from a reform perspective. Hmm. Can I uh, can I ask some clarifying questions? I, you know, this sure. is your shindig, Sean, uh, you sure. know, so I don't go, want to oh, push, push back no, too much. No. But, um, so... From from Isaiah 46, uh, verse 10, you said that that word, mine says from the beginning. The word in Hebrew is is from ancient times, apparently. Is that what you were saying? Yeah, it can be, it, I mean, it can, that that's a kind of an interesting word in the Hebrew. Let me pull it up here real quick. While you're, uh, while you're pulling that up, my question would be, uh, you believe that it's before the foundation of the world. Uh, and maybe this is something that we can look into at our own separate time. But uh, as far as I understand, um, couldn't this be from another, because it says from the beginning or from ancient times. So then my question would be from the beginning of what, or from, from ancient times of what, uh, would you, would you agree that this particular text doesn't necessarily equal a pre-temporal from the beginning? Yeah, I can I can concede that. Um, I would I can concede that you you could concede that there's not enough clear didactic evidence in that passage. Sure. Ancient times means from eternity. And then and uh, then my other question would be: when it says I declare the end from the beginning, couldn't you also concede that? Uh, you know, just dealing with this passage, obviously we could go through a whole systematic, you know, kind of survey or whatever, sure. but um, that when he says, I declared the end that that could be, that could be like, you know, say from the times of Enoch, Hey, this is the end that I'm declaring. I'm going to do it. No choice. That's what's happening. Instead of like all ends or all, you know, like if yeah. I said, I'm going to declare the end, that yeah. doesn't necessarily mean every end. Right. Well, and this and this is an issue that sometimes I have with provisionism and other views is that when you see a quali- a non-qualified statement there, he doesn't qualify. He just says sure. declared the end from the beginning. Our hermeneutic would say if God does it once, it's good enough that that's the way he always acts. And so for example, I would say like in Acts 2:42 and other places where God predestined the killing of Jesus, um we have an example of God predestining evil to occur. And that's one example of how it happened. And I've heard, you know, Leighton and others say, well, that doesn't mean in every situation that's ever happened, God predestined all the evil. That's just one example. But that's really like a negative inference. You, you, you have to say, well, I, I mean, it happened once. I have to go through and prove that in every single case it happened, it didn't happen again. And that's almost impossible to do. So you, 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 you go with an, a didactic statement about God's nature, and from that you build a theology about how God operates at all mm-hmm. times is kind of the hermeneutic that the Reformed yeah. view would have. And I guess I would say, like, that's one thing that I've learned from listening to Reformed people is they would say something like this, you know, declares the end from the beginning or the cross, that if God can predestine one thing, that the one event that's arguably sinful, blamelessly, then he can and does predestine all things blamelessly. But then my question, so then my follow-up question for you would be, um, 
why does it follow that if God can predestine one thing that he does, like, it, you know, why does it follow that if he declares the end from the beginning in this one instance that he does, I'm not, can you help me understand that? Um, I mean, we can look at like, we can look at Job's life when God said to Job, um, like, for example, in Job 28, um, let's just go to verse 25, Job 28, 25. When he gave the wind its weight and apportioned the waters by measure, when he made a decree for the rain and a way for the lightning to the thunder, then he saw it and declared it. He established it and searched it out. And he said to man, behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom and to turn away from evil is understanding. Um, when did God create? You could go back and say, well, this decree came at creation, either before creation, when God decreed to make the heavens and the earth, when God decreed to make the wind, um, when God apportioned the waters, when God established it, when God established lightning and thunder, you could say these are things that God has just built into his creation, immutably ordaining where the lightning strikes, um, where, mm. when it rains and when it doesn't, in the, just in the natural course of things. And they would say if that's the natural course of how God operates in making his decree, then it would follow from that that this would happen just in the way he operates in the world that he's created. Okay. I don't want to push too much because we could talk about it for a while, but if Eric wants sure. to add anything or we could, we could move on. Yeah, let's, to do the, the, uh, let's do the next one. I think, I think he explained, he explained it well. Yeah. It's an example of what yeah, he yeah, does. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. sure. Um, number three, uh, passages like first Corinthians 10, 13 and, and yeah. seven thirty-seven seem right. to indicate otherwise choice and that we have mm -hmm. kind of power over our wills, what we would call libertarian freedom. Mm -hmm. um, just, do you believe that in your in your own life, do you believe that the Holy Spirit has made you look back and told you that you could have done something differently? Like, you know, you you wronged your your family, you wronged your wife, you wronged your kids, you wronged a friend, um, you you sinned against them or or you know, just personally sinned. Mm -hmm. That the Holy Spirit caused you to look back and go, man, I could have done mm -hmm. differently. Mm -hmm. I don't. I don't like remember an exact case where that was very you know, pronounced in my life, but I would say that could I have done differently is a different question of did I do differently? Because we're talking about potential versus what actually happened. Sure. Um, because I think what I'm trying, what I'm trying to gather from your question about that passage, like, so first, first Corinthians 10, 13 no temptation is overtaking you that's not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Um, so I think maybe the assumption would be this. Um, I sinned in a particular situation. According to this passage of Scripture, I was able to not sin in that particular situation. Therefore, I could have chosen either to sin or not sin in that moment. I had contracausal free will either to sin or not sin in any given situation. And so I guess the, the question or the assumption would be that the way of escape there that God gives has to be contrary choice. Um, and I would say that, the, the reason that we're able to resist temptation is not necessarily that at that moment we have the power of contrary choice. I think it's because as a regenerate believer, we've been empowered by God through his sanctifying work in our lives to develop desires, habits that would lead us to make the right choice. Um, on the other hand, you know, when we do succumb to temptation, um, it's because we didn't rely on the Holy Spirit in that moment uh, for the desire, for the, the will to do what needed to be done. Um, well, so so, either, either whether you rely on the Holy Spirit or, or not uh, in that moment, was the sense that you have just in your own self, the sense that you have that I could have done differently in that moment, is that sense real? Could you really have done differently in that moment? Um, I would and, say, I would say, 
I would say I, from Drew, Drew, am I asking that well? Is that no? That's a good yeah. I, so, so this was this was one of my questions, and I guess I'm just thinking, and I realize that this is subjective, and I put the scriptures up there just to kind of give a little bit of a soundbite that your listeners and others can go check out as far as the biblical basis for free will, or whatever. But I'm just thinking after we've sinned, I think that all of us, I hope, have experienced some sort of not only that you should have done differently but that you could have done differently. And then I'm asking if that Holy Spirit consciousness, uh, you know, our conscience impression on us is true. Like how, do, you know, how do we, how, how do you respond to that? Yeah, I think you're asking, the, it is a subjective question. I think the question you're asking is, is there a difference between could I have or, or did I? Um, and looking well, back. Well, no, I think, there, I, I'm, I guess I, you know, being real specific, we know that you, we know that we didn't, right? We know that we didn't, and we know that we should have done differently. Right. That's something that we all, that we both agree on. But right. what it seems like, as far as compatibilism, uh, right. you know, self determinism, and the divine decree, that if you, if you say that your conscience or the Holy Spirit or some combination of that has told you, hey, Drew. You, you not only should have done differently, but you could have actually been kind to your wife in that interaction mm -hmm. that you just had, that that yeah. would then be a yeah, false I guess intuition. I, yeah. I guess I don't think in those types of terms. I guess I don't, mm. I guess I don't operate under impressions from the Holy spirit telling me what I could have done um, in a situation. Um, mm. I guess the reformed answer would be you, even as a regenerate person, you still, you still act upon your nature and your desires. Sure. And even though that you're regenerate, you're not perfected, you still have indwelling sin that you struggle with. And that through the empowering help of the Holy Spirit who works in you to will and to, to work toward his good pleasure, you over time, through training yourself for godliness, through self-control, through the sustaining grace of the Holy Spirit in your life, you have the character to be able to make the right choice in that decision. Um, because the, the, the other option would be that if it's only like libertarian free will, that would, uh, would be the answer as to why I could have done differently. It would have to say that every person, even with a little or no character development, like a baby Christian that, that didn't have a lot of maturity could consistently choose to do right. Or, a person that's the most mature Christian who's been developed character over a lot of years could conceivably always choose wrong. Mm. So there's no actual changing of the will, changing of the, the desires over time through, you know, the indwelling spirit and progressive sanctification. Mm. I'm not sure if I'm answering your question. Yeah, no, that's, that's it's good. It's, it's all part of the conversation. I guess I would, I guess I would say that, um, and we've talked about this in our original sin episode, which is basically just a positive kind of, what do we believe about man's sinfulness episode? And, um, I, I guess we would say that, that logically speaking with regards to libertarian free will, it's, uh, I would use the word conceivable, like in terms of logically conceivable that that could happen, but it just doesn't. And it never will because we're weak and we inevitably will fall. And so I guess, I guess my question, uh, you know, with regards to this passage specifically is that it says that, uh, so I guess I, let's concede that we don't have libertarian freedom in each and every temptation, right? But let's, or, or in each and every choice, I should say, but let's limit it to the Christian's temptations. And so my, my question would be, uh, well, I guess this is more into the exegetical more than the subjective. We've already touched on the subjective, but does this mean, this seems to indicate to us that if God provides, or I think the word is just gives a way of escape yeah. there, that if it's been immutably eternally decreed that I would only do one thing, then in what meaningful way is there a way of escape? And I guess a way of escape would be like, you know, I'm headed this way. Here's the way of escape. I could do this, but I don't. And so this is the contrary choice, you know, the two that, that at least in that moment, 
of temptation of potentially being overtaken that God provides a way of escape. Um, so I don't, you, you can respond to that how you will. There's not really a question there, I guess, but yeah. Um, I, I probably need to think through this more because this, this was a good question. Um, I would say that if we limit the way of escape to like one thing, i.e. libertarian free will, we're not looking at all the things that God does through means to get us to that point. Yeah. And so and, if God had, go ahead. I'm sorry. I just want to, I just want to be clear. I don't believe that the way of escape is libertarian free will. I think the way of escape is, Hey, you know, downgrade your phone to a dumb phone. You're struggling with this or, Hey, you need right. to do push-ups, sure. or, Hey, shut your mouth. You shouldn't say that. Uh, but that the way of escape is, is simply, uh, brings the concept of libertarian free will. So I guess I would just nuance that a bit and say that the way of escape is all of the means I'm sure that sure. you and I, you know, the three of us would, would all affirm. So um, I'm not sure if that's helpful, but it's something we could, you know, we could yeah, some, yeah. yeah, no, I appreciate that question. I, I, I would probably have to think through a little bit more as far sure. as it, it was a little bit confusing to me, the way it was worded. And, and to be honest yeah. with you, I didn't have as much time to, yeah, and we and we apologize for that. You sent us your questions, let's see, three no. days ago, and we got them no, to you a day ago. No, Some of it's our fault. No, that's okay. Um, and should I just ask these next uh, two sure. questions here? Sure. Um, and I have the clip of this. I don't know if you had yeah. a chance to look at this. Yeah, I, I watched it a few, a few times. <laughs> okay, we can we can play it for your listeners if you like, because I actually have it embedded uh, here uh, that I could that I could share yeah, or whatever, but. But the question is, if you're sharing the gospel with a lost person, assuming for argument's sake that they are one, one of the elect and you have a genuine heartfelt love and compassion for them and want them to be saved, where does this come from? An elaborate elaboration on this. Well, I said elaboration on this question can be found below. Do you think that's clear enough for your audience or do you want to do we want to throw um, the clip in here? I could. Well, maybe after the fact, you can maybe in, embed it in there. But I guess. Let me let me enter. This was a good question. Let me interact with it. And, and, and this is where I will be a consistent Calvinist. Maybe you haven't met one yet. Um, <laughs> but um, let me just start with a couple of, of ideas here um, to elaborate. Number one, I I don't find anywhere in the Bible where I'm told to determine the identity of the elect or non-elect. And this goes to my understanding of the two wills of God, which obviously is a reformed understanding of God's prescriptive will of command that we're to follow what he's revealed clearly in scriptures, um, which we know is to make disciples, to preach the gospel, to call people to repent and believe. Um, and we don't know the secret counsel of God and we're not responsible for knowing that. So I operate first and foremost with that lens when I come to this question, even though Ronnie Rogers in his clip said, you know, move that aside. I really can't move that aside because that's the way I, I operate. And then number two, I look at the book of Acts and I look at the evangelism that's done there and I see them sharing the gospel. I see them preaching Christ. Um, but there's not really in the, in the book of Acts per se, this um, description at least of a heartfelt love and compassion for them to want to be saved. Now that doesn't mean I don't want people you know, not to be saved. So as a Christian, you know, I was even preaching on this yesterday um, in Romans five, six, God's love has been poured into our hearts. So we have received the love of Christ in our hearts and that's to pour out to others. Even if that means that we love our enemies, we, we do good to those who hate us. Um, and so the think the point that Ronnie is making in that clip, and maybe the point you guys are, is what I'm trying to understand is here's the point. If I, as a limited human, have a genuine desire and love to see a lost person saved, then I must be more loving than God who has eternally passed them over and not predestined them. Um, and so they would say the argument is that the love I feel for the lost person must not have come from God because God didn't elect them, God didn't want them, God would not motivate me to love someone he chose to pass over. Why would God put that love in my heart for a person that he already knows is reprobate? So that love can't come from God because obviously he destined them uh, to hell. 
Am I understanding that correctly? Is that kind of the point he's yeah, making? I think yeah. I think it's basically just, you know, it's acknowledging the fact that we that hopefully listeners, if you've not experienced this and you need to go out and share your faith. Right. But if you're sharing your faith with someone and right. you feel like, man, I just, you know, you know, I really want this person to come, come sure. be saved. We've all experienced that. Sure. And so, yes, the main question is, where does that come from? Uh, is it from right. us? Is it from the enemy? Is it from God? Right. Um, and I yeah. think and I would say that. Um, I guess for me, the issue is the, the, the identity of the elect. Um, and I'm only responsible for obeying the revealed will of God. And, and I, I mean, I guess the assumption is I can't love a person that supposedly is not elect because that love would not come from God. And I, I almost think and this might be a cop out. It's kind of an argument from silence because I'm not sure if I've ever told in the Bible to love somebody because they're elect or they're non-elect. I'm, I'm told to love sinners I'm told to love my enemies. I'm told to love brothers and sisters in Christ, to, to love indiscriminately. And so what I do is to do what God tells me to do out of obedience. And so I agree mm. with him that it's vertical um, mm. in a sense, that my evangelism is vertical in the sense that I'm sharing the gospel because I'm commanded to. But at the same token, since I don't know the identity of the elect and I'm not privy to that, all I know is that the person in front of me needs Jesus. And so in a horizontal horizontal, a horizontal way, um, I do love them. I do urge them. I plead with them to be reconciled with God. Um, and beyond that, you know, I don't know, you know, I don't know how we can answer, you know, who put that love in my heart for the person. Um, I, again, I'm not told the identity of the elect. At the same time, I'm told to love everyone regardless of whether I know their eternal destiny. And so I have to balance that from what I know that Scripture does reveal and the way I understand it. Now, again, you guys are going to disagree, but number one, I believe that God has a sovereign decree. He's predestined his people for salvation. Others he's passed over. So I have to take that in my mind. And at the same time, I also have to balance that with the call to tell people to repent and believe and to do that with urgency and to do that with compassion. Um, and so. You know, that's the way I would kind of operate or, or answer that question. You know, I think about Paul when he was in um, at, when he was in Corinth um, in Acts eighteen, like nine through eleven, and he was kind of afraid. He was he didn't wasn't sure if he wanted to be in Corinth much longer because he was getting pressure. And Jesus appeared to him in a vision and said, "Don't be afraid. Go on speaking and don't be silent, for I'm with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people." And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God to them. Um, you know, Jesus told Paul, there are people in the city who are my people. There are an elect group of people that, in the way I understand, is there are an elect group of people in the city, Corinth, who will come to faith in Christ. It's not your job to know exactly who they are. You just, you just stay there and teach the word of God among them. And through your teaching, through your caring, through your compassion, through your ministry, they will come to faith. You don't need to be responsible for knowing who they are. You're just responsible for doing the ministry. And so I guess I would say I don't think I can take that you don't know the identity of the elect out of the equation because I think that is an important issue for me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Cool. Thanks for that. We'll uh, we'll go on to the last question here. Where yeah. I, I think this is just going to be one episode. Uh, <laughs> and so it'll be interesting oh, can, to see who, who can makes I, it can to I the end here. Can I just yep. follow up? And you, don't, you guys don't have to answer this question, but as I thought about it, let me just let me ask you guys that same question based upon your on, on your view of election. Um, and, and again, maybe think about this for your next podcast. And I'd like to hear your answer. Can you genuinely offer salvation to someone in love if you believe that God already knows what they will do? God has foreseen their choice. And that choice is to never come to faith. Mm. And the question is, if God loves them so much, why would he not do everything in his power to bring them to faith? It's a good question because uh, Drew and I would have different answers to it. Yeah. And so, I mean, the, 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 the typical answers you know may that. not be I, yours. I want to hear Eric's answer. I'm, I'm interested. Well, I, did, I said don't answer it now. Okay, we won't answer now. Okay. Yeah. But, Food for but thought. I would say, we'll do, we'll do but, a little mini episode yeah. on that or something. But, but I would say, okay, so... 
in some in some views, non I'd say non-Calvinist. Yeah, you're saying we're not off the hook for this question. Yeah. In right. some views, not non-Calvinistic views, some people say, you know, the value that God has is he values their free will choice over compelling them to be saved. In other words, God loves them so much that he could have saved them, but instead he leaves it up to them in the end to choose not to be saved. So I would argue in both views, you have to struggle with God's love. So in the reform view, God's love is limited to his elect, where he's done everything in his power to save them. In other views, God's limited by free will, where he's done everything to provide salvation. But in the end, you ultimately are the the one that chooses whether you'll take advantage of that and be saved. And so the question is, if God is loving, would he not want all people to be saved? And would he not ensure it happens? And so how would you guys, not now, but how would you guys answer that, that same question? How can you look at a person with love, whether you know the identity of the elect or non-elect, but you know that somehow God knows that they're not going to come to him and he could have saved them, but he didn't. How does that get God off the hook for being loving? It's just something to think about mm-hmm. if you guys haven't thought about that before. We'll do it. We'll, we'll respond. We'll I mean, I'm yeah. brimming with response here, but we're at, we're yeah. at an hour 45. So we'll, yeah, yeah. we'll just move forward. Yeah. I know. Um, uh, I expected to do about, uh, to do about two hours personally, but yeah. I hope you guys, are I, I, I thought it was. Yeah. We're almost yeah. done. So, um, so this is a follow on from question one and two, which uh, you, you agreed that uh, Calvinism is founded upon the premise that everything is eternally immutably pre- predestined to work out only way. And you gave some, uh, scriptures yeah. that you believe support this. And so this is a little bit hairy. This is a little bit practical. Um, sure, you know, it's, uh, it, you know, we're all about ideas have consequences and stuff. And you're in a, obviously a pastoral position yourself. I'm, I'm in a similar position here over university students. Um, and so it says, if you're counseling someone and they ask you about God's will for their life regarding something tragic or traumatic that they've uh, been through, uh, like, like COVID-19, you know, for instance, maybe um, I'm sure you've experienced a lot of that. Uh, sure. Why wouldn't it be appropriate to tell them the truth that God immutably predestined it for his glory and that they should glorify him for it too? I know that that's kind of loaded, but I feel like that's, I'll, I'll let you respond. No, and I, and I agree with it. I mean, it would be appropriate to tell them that. Um, how you tell them that, you have to have some pastoral nuance uh, but I don't disagree with the theology of that. Sure. Um, so let me just give you maybe two verses, and then I'm going to kind of unpack this more philosophically. Um, Lamentations 3, 37 to 38, who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord has commanded it. Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both good and bad come? Ecclesiastes seven fourteen. in the day of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. So here's the thing, and here's the, here's the problem, regardless of what view you hold to, um, because we can argue, we can nuance language, okay? So whatever terminology you use, God ordained it, God decreed it, God predestined it, or even God allowed it. If you, let's, let's concede God allowed it. Let's just take, let's take out the predestined immutable decree, and let's just say, okay, God allowed it to happen. You you can't escape the fact that it always goes back to God, because if God allowed it to happen and he didn't intervene to stop it when he could have and he has the power to stop it and he's also loving and he could stop it out of love, then why didn't he stop it? Why did God allow it to happen when he could have stopped it? And neither one of us has an answer for that. You can say, well, God, it's part of God's immutable decree. And let's glorify him for that. Or God could have stopped it and he didn't. He allowed it to happen to you and it was very painful. Let's glorify him for that. Either way, you're basically saying that God knew it was going to happen. God saw it happening at the time. God could have intervened to cause it to not happen. He could have allowed that person not to be born. He could have allowed you not to be born. All those things could have happened. But anyway, you slice it. It all comes back to God allowing something that he could have prevented. And the bottom line is we don't know why. Uh, so in the, in the pastoral moment, 
you can get caught up in the immutable decree, all the different theology, but somebody, if they're really thinking deeply, they're going to think that question, something bad happened to me. Why did it happen to me? If God's powerful, he could have stopped it. Why didn't he? God's loving. He could have stopped it. He must not love me. So God must not be loving. God must not be powerful. God must hate me or God must not like me or God, you know, God's allowed this. And you can say, well, he allowed it for a purpose. But even then you're still back to that whole issue of, I don't know, (laughs) what's the purpose? Um, So even if, so even if you don't buy the eternal immutable decree and you hold to foreknowledge or omniscience, um, if you say God values free will and that evil occurs because we live in a fallen world and people act freely to sin against each other and he knows about it and he sees it before it happens or he, he doesn't intervene in the moment, you're still left with the why question and you can't get God off the hook. So I don't know how you're going to have to, if so, you know, the first thing you don't do when you go in a counseling situation, you know, somebody loses a loved one. Do you know this was immutably decreed by God and we need to glorify him for what's happened? I've never done that in my pastoral ministry. You cry. Thank God. But, 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 but yeah, you, you're not a, you're not a jerky Calvinist where you come in and give them theology, you, you give them compassion, but eventually those questions are going to have to be answered if they're really thinking through. I think, and, I think we can both see the accuracy and the, the truth and maybe even it, even it's compassion to say, I don't know yeah. to those questions. But I wonder if, and we can, we can stop right after this one yeah. and, and you can, but I wonder if, would you see the pastoral value in being able to say, I don't know, but I do know that God had nothing to do with it. See, I don't think I could say that because if I believe God is meticulously and providentially guiding all things to happen, and that again goes into a second issue where we didn't touch on, which is an issue of compatibilism as secondary causation versus direct causation. And I don't want to necessarily get into that, but I, I mean, I would say. Or like in a hypothetical world, right? Like yeah, in a hypothetical, yeah, like true. you said in the beginning, let's say God just allowed it. Yeah. Would you see the pastoral value on the God allowed it paradigm? to being able to say, but I know God had nothing to do with it. But if you say God had nothing to do with it, then basically you're saying God allowed it for a purpose when he could have not. And so it's, it happened and it's bad and it's evil and he didn't intervene. So God had nothing to do with it. Then it would just be, basically it would be an act of evil that would just be an act of evil. And I guess you would say, Okay, God had no hand in it. But then you're saying, okay, why does God do that? Sure. Why does God, think, why is why is God hands off? And then that goes back to, okay, why? So if God yeah. had nothing to do with if God had nothing to do with it, then the next question would be, well, why didn't he have something to do with it? He, yep. he should have had something to do with it. He should have intervened. He should have done something. Why is God not intervening? And then it's back to God again. And you're, and you're asking that why question. I don't know why God had nothing to do with it. Because he chose not to do anything with it. Well, why did he choose not to do anything about it? Sure. You keep kicking the can back and it goes back to God. Yeah. Yeah, I think, um, yeah, I guess we can close on that. We could probably talk about it for a little while. You know, I have some thoughts and stuff on it, but I realize that we're at the hour and 50 mark here, uh, you know, minus introductions and stuff. Oh, that's great. Um, But uh, yeah. I would say this has been exhaustingly fruitful. (laughs) <laughs> and, and mentally challenging. And a, I've a great, enjoyed it. Great, it's been a great, great time. Yeah. It was fantastic. I, well, blessings on your podcast or your your podcast and your YouTube clip. Um, even though we disagree, I appreciate what you guys are doing. I wish you guys blessings um, and keep up the good work of defending. You know, my biggest issue is you know defend what you believe and why. You know, that's all I can ask. Because if you've come to these exegetical conclusions on your own and you're defending them and you're, you're convinced, then go for it. Yeah. Yeah. And that's all I can for, ask. Yeah. And for the non-Calvinist uh, listeners that, c- that come along to this, or even Calvinist listeners, it's not enough to just say you disagree with someone. Like, oh, I know that the Bible doesn't, you know, the Bible doesn't teach Calvinism. You need to, like, we need to wrestle with these things, right? We need to be able to say why it is 
that we believe what we do. And then hopefully, you know, hopefully we've accomplished, accomplished that today. So, well, this leads, this probably leads you guys to four or five other podcasts to, because Sean Cole, because Sean Cole said it, because Sean Cole said it, we're going to, we might do, we might do a little bit of response, but we've got a few different, uh, kind of things coming up and stuff that will yeah. you know you might be interested in called uh the the rise and fall of southern baptist traditionalism is oh, something that we want to tackle that'd be interesting so yeah yeah get eric hankins on the phone and find out oh, to from your mouth to god's ear just like just <laughs> if you want to if you want to put a bug in his ear and tell him there's this podcast I, that wants to i've never hey. i've never really interacted with him that much um, it's really weird. I mean, just in closing, I think it was kind of tied to that Louisiana Baptist College. Was there kind of a tie-in to the Louisiana Convention and some things there? Um, maybe you may. Yeah, you I mean know. New Orleans, the N O N O B T S? No, not, 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 not the okay. not the seminary, yeah. not the seminary. But there's a like a Baptist college in Louisiana where a lot of that stuff was coming out of hmm. the tradition. The, the um, Connect three sixteen. Oh, okay. Trace See, that maybe, maybe Trace we, that we got we got we got still some learning to do. Drew. You don't have to worry man. about it. It's dead now. It's gone. Dead. <laughs> yeah, I saw, I, yeah, I saw your I saw your thing on that, and I think Adam Harwood had a pretty good response of how he's writing a systematic theology, defending traditionalism or something. Yeah, um, he's, which, uh, he's he's been doing that for a couple of years. Yeah, I assume that it will just be like he's a traditionalist and he has this uh, this information out there. But my plea in that episode uh, that I did just recently was basically like, we need to be online. Like we need to have resources, more resources online. As far as I understand, Soteriology 101 is the only. It is. It is. The Gospel Coalition, Together for the Gospel, Nine Marks. I mean, you name it. Ligonier, when you Google questions. Desiring God, grace to even, you. Even got questions. Got uh, questions. Yeah, yeah. Is, is oh, even, we did it. We did an episode on got questions. Yeah, uh, and it's 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 interesting. Yeah, I, I would just ask for more balance. But and that's one of the things back in the day I asked. I I, I talked to Braxton Hunter, Adam Harwood, Eric Hankins, and I said you guys need to get together and come up with a systematic yes. theology where you guys can start putting out books. And they're like, we're working on it. We're working on it. And I, you know, I, I think Layton's the only one out there that's beating the drum and, and doing the, this is going the, in, right? This is staying in. This is going you, can, you can keep, you can keep that in. That was like four or five years ago. I told those guys they need to, and, I, and I'm on the opposite side, but I told them you guys need to put out some, you know, use, use broad oh and public, whatever, get that stuff Sean, out. Sean, did so we just become best friends? <laughs> no, I think it's important because the more your views out there, the more, we can interact like this and there's not mislabeling and, and you guys can put out what you believe in writing. Uh, hey, just so, the Lord. This is providential. Immutably predestined for God's glory from eternity past. Amen. Or he allowed or he allowed it. You know, yeah. Well, I freely chose to, um, to contact those guys with my contracausal free will. So. You sure did. All right. Well, thanks guys. I appreciate yeah. the time and um, hopefully we can do this again sometime. Mm, let's, be great. Yeah, let's do it. All right. Thanks for thanks for having us on. Yep. Thank you guys for being here. Appreciate it. Appreciate your ministry.